So as a young budding 20 year old from the University of Medina, I'm quoting my teachers and I'm quoting texts and I'm very fiery against the Shiites. Okay, fast forward 9-11, the internecine warfare that takes place in Iraq, in uh, Afghanistan, in Pakistan, people bombing other people's shrines. And I'm like, we don't want this to happen. I realized that clerics have a role to play in that violence, even if they don't fire the gun, but they're the ones sprinkling the kerosene. Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin, and today we have with us Yasser Qadi, Dean of the Islamic Seminary of America and a doctoral graduate of Yale University, specializing in Islamic intellectual history and thought. Dr. Qadi, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Salaam, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure and honor. To start, I want to generally talk about your experience growing up in America. How are things the same and how are they now different for you? Uh, so I was born in the 70s. Um, there was only one main mosque in Houston at the time. My father was the, one of the founders of that mosque. Um, and uh, obviously it was just one community back then. It was literally one masjid uh, that we would go to. And uh, we pretty much knew almost every single other active uh, Muslim family at the time. Uh, and uh, I remember, you know, listening to the sermons and not really understanding anything because <laughs> uh, either they spoke in Arabic or the accent was so heavy that you really just didn't understand anything. And I do feel very strongly that that was one of my own motivational factors to, to go and study Islam because I didn't really have a scholarly uh, intellectual who spoke English fluently to look up to. And not that I wanted to become something like that. That was the furthest thing from my mind, but rather just my own curiosity, my own um, um, just emptiness about understanding my faith was definitely one of the main factors. And the fact that there was no, at the time, for, remember, I mean, I went to study overseas in the early 90s, mid 90s. And the, the only people that were active were um, people that are very, I mean, they, they definitely, we owe them a lot, but they aren't trained scholars like Siraj Wahaj or Jamal Badawi or others who did a lot of work and we definitely owe a lot to them. But obviously they were not, you know, professionally trained in Islamic seminaries and there was no such thing as, as a cleric or a clergyman or a sheikh or an alim who spoke English as a mother tongue. And I have no doubt in, 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 in retrospect that that emptiness was one of my main uh, motivational factors uh, to go study my own faith. I see. Have you seen the way in which Muslims define Muslimness evolve in the last 20 years? There's no question that uh, there's been a huge impetus to uh, reclaim our narrative. I think that 9-11 uh, uh, was a huge catalyst for within the community. Obviously, it was a very big tragedy from without, but 9-11 was a very... Um, uh, a very huge wake-up call for almost all of us uh, to understand that this is our land and we need to plant, you know, our, our, our own flags and reclaim our own narrative. We need to take the charge of how the media defines us and how uh, we are portrayed. And it was, I mean, I, I remember pre-9-11 very well because I was giving my sermons pre-9-11. I, I, I had begun my quote-unquote professional career as a cleric pre-9-11. And I remember the seismic shift that took place. 
uh, a lot of clerics and preachers, they kind of sort of had a paradigm shift. And I was one of them uh, where we understand that there's a lot more at stake than we had previously um, understood. And we understood as well that we need to indigenize. That was something that was foreign to us back then. We always thought Islam is something exotic and external, even as Muslims. And we understood that in, in order to pass Islam down, we have to indigenize our religion and make it more American within the framework of orthodoxy, if that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And then do you see, what would you see as markers of the Muslim identity for Islam in the 21st century, both at the general level and more specifically in the West? Uh, I think one of the main uh, shifts for me, and I think I speak on behalf of a lot of people as well, if you listen, I don't want to mention other clerics and preachers' names, but if you look at the discourse pre-9-11 versus post-9-11, I think the understanding that um, uh, America is our land and that we are here for the long run and that uh, we do need to develop uh, and, and foster a sense of attachment and ownership, uh, the notion that um, maybe scholarship would have been foreign at the time and most of us did look to foreign scholars, but now we need to have a new generation of American scholarship uh, and pass down uh, a faith tradition that is at once authentic to the tradition and also in harmony with uh, the environment and the land around us. I don't think that that was something that was explicit pre 9-11 and it definitely became up front and center post 9-11. And then if, you, if we shift our conversation to Muslim perception, Muslims we've seen in the West have engaged in you know, robust outreach initiatives to try to help correct the perception of Islam in the West. You often mention it starts locally, and I'm curious about how do we change perceptions perhaps more quickly, and what areas would you personally like to see more Muslim presence? So um, I feel that one of our biggest uh, lacuna, our vacuums, really is in charity. Uh, I'm a strong believer in the prophetic model, and if you look at the prophetic model, uh, he impacted uh, people, even pre-prophethood, he impacted people on a personal level, being a compassionate, uh, caring individual who stood up for the various segments of society that were generally underrepresented. Uh, of the earliest Quranic revelations is feeding the orphan, taking care of the wayfarer, uh, being generous to those in need. And I feel that Muslims uh, have romanticized charities overseas and have neglected charities in their own localities. I feel that if you look again at the earliest Quranic injunctions of feeding the hungry, you know, it's very early Quranic revelation. The first advice that the Prophet gave, so I said when he entered Medina, was feed the hungry. That was the first advice, the first literal tradition is, you know, feed the hungry. And I look around and I'm like, where, where is that generosity in our community when it comes to soup kitchens, when it comes to taking care of local, you know, home shelters? We are the most generous faith community. According to the Guardian newspaper, it surveyed all faith traditions. Muslims came out number one. We know that. My problem, though, or my issue is that that, that generosity seems to be uh, for causes that are overseas. When there's a, a flood in Kashmir, when there's the Palestinian refugees, when there's this and that, we are very generous. And I'm thankful to God we are generous. I'm not saying we shouldn't be generous. I'm saying we should have the same amount of generosity, or dare I say, even a higher amount of generosity for charities that are local because we do believe as Muslims, charities begin at home. So number one factor, charity at home and showing what it means to be a Muslim vis-a-vis uh, -vis our actions. Actions speak louder than words. 
We need to demonstrate the compassion, the care uh, that Islam teaches us by showing that, by translating that compassion into caring for the people around us in our own communities. Agreed. Another challenge, especially in the West, that people face, people of religion face, and particularly the youth here, is the influence of atheism, secularism, and a growing antipathy towards faith that religion lacks intellectual merit. It feels as though religion is fighting a losing battle and ideological tsunami. Given your decades of work, what, if anything, can be done to create a robust response to this antipathy towards faith? This is a challenge that all faith traditions are struggling with. We're not alone. Um, faithful Christians, faithful uh, Jews, uh, people of all faith traditions, they're seeing the rise of agnosticism and atheism uh, in the next generation. Uh, as you said, a tsunami wave, uh, and it's very aptly put, a tsunami wave uh, is hitting all faith traditions. And um, that's not something that I saw growing up at all. I mean, literally, it was almost non-existent. Actually, let me rephrase and say, I don't even know of a single case when I was growing up in my own extended circle of friends uh, of a person publicly renouncing the faith. That just didn't happen in the early 80s, uh, mid 80s, even you know, to the 90s, it was very rare. Even though in college, of course, I met such people, but very rare. Uh, what I see now is that it is quite normal and uh, it's becoming something that almost every family knows of at least one family member or at least an immediate um, uh, friend uh, who has uh, basically left uh, the faith and become uh, agnostic or atheist. What is the solution? You know, I wish there was an easy one. <laughs> we, we're all in this together. What I have found, though, is that there is no short-term solution. Rather, solutions are long-term. What I've seen myself, I've experienced this in my own extended uh, network of friends, uh, where we've had cases of, of young men and women leave the faith. And I have also seen that there is a relatively high percentage who come back to the faith, especially those whose experiences within the faith were generally uh, positive. And I think the reason for this, and again, allow me to speak as a person of faith, I think the reasons are self-evident and obvious. It is true, and I'll be the first to say, even though it's awkward to say this, that agnostics or atheists do have some very, very difficult questions, some of which don't have solid answers, and therefore some of which do lead intellectuals to doubt their own faith tradition. So they end up leaving the faith. But once they reject the faith and they join a movement of agnosticism or atheism, it turns out that atheism doesn't itself solve many of the problems it raises in religion. On the contrary, I would say, an, 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 an atheist paradigm actually creates a far larger set of unanswered questions, questions that religion does answer, such as, what's the purpose of life? What's going to happen after death? Why are we here? How do we live our lives? These are questions that religion does answer. And People who reject faith, generally speaking, don't have a solid answer to. So what I've found myself, and, and, and I've seen this, like I said, in my own extended circle of, of friends, and people come to me all the time because of, of my background. And so I would say that there's no easy short-term answer, but that we continue to provide robust intellectual responses to the best of our ability. And then, frankly, just put our trust in God that if a child is raised with, with proper, you know, uh, religion, proper good spirited theology, because, you know, I also say, and I've seen this, and I'm sure you have as well, a lot of times agnosticism and atheism is actually a rebellion against 
the cultural religious environment that the child has grown up in and it's it's about it's about personally i'm not being i'm not saying this is all the time definitely it's not all the time but not infrequently atheism is essentially an overgrown teenage rebellion against a father or mother figure whom you don't like and i'm 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 not trying to be too stereotypical but i think there's an element of truth to that as well and it does also happen so patience love correct religion good theology and then putting our trust in 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 god and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala i think that's really the best thing that can be done i want to talk more here about the academic study of religion how did your exposure to the study of islam in an academic institution like yale university change your views about islam or how islam should be approached here i'm talking about the role of historical context in situating muslimness and the expression and ideas of Muslim identity through time and place. There's no question that uh, going to Yale has impacted me, and uh, all you need to do is look at my pre-Yale lectures and sermons and post-Yale lectures and sermons. <laughs> and I don't view that as a negative thing at all. I'm very happy at uh, everything that God has blessed me with. I'm very happy I went to the University of Medina for 10 years, and I'm very happy that um, you know I did my PhD from Yale. It took me eight years, five years of in-residence, and then three years after that. And I, that has shaped me, that combination of a 10-year seminary training with an eight-year you know, education at Yale, along with my life experiences and preaching and teaching at a very, very high public and international level, it's really made me who I am. And I'm very grateful for every single facet. I don't think it's fair to say I'm only the product of Yale or I'm only the product of Medina. I am the combination of all of that. You're asking me how Yale impacted me or how the Western study of Islam impacted me. Uh, that is a question that cannot simplistically be answered in any interview. It's actually a far more deeper uh, uh, discussion. But I'll, I will... I think that's fair. I, I will give a very quick response by stating that Yale uh, taught me that, that some of the assumptions that I had made in the Medina phase uh, were too simplistic and that I was forced to rethink through my tradition. And one of the things that Yale did do was to force me to critically engage rather than to just uh, not really do a deep dive because that's what the Eastern tradition does, just accept and don't challenge your teachers and professors and just you know, take it as it is. And of course, there, is, there are no holes barred in the Western tradition and you're forced to, as you said, contextualize and do a deep dive. And uh, in my particular case, what it caused me to do was to see the tradition that I was very much attached to uh, at the University of Medina, to appreciate and understand that that tradition was not divine, it was a human construct. And to force myself to then come to terms with the divine aspect of faith, which is not a human construct, and between the various traditions that are existing, which are all human constructs. And of course, this is happening in my own mind because my teachers are not going to teach me this stuff, are they? They're, they're, they themselves are coming from their own paradigm. But the questions that they're asking, the methodological assumptions that they're making, uh, the, critical, uh, the, the source critical engagements that they're doing, it did cause me to reevaluate my own tradition. And it caused me to realize that the divine religion of Islam transcends any human tradition that is attempting to link to it. Does that make sense to you or am I being too... No, it uh, does. It does. So it's really about where these ideas come from and then also how they affect later ideas too. And things like exactly. That. To, to understand that 
So, of course, there has to be a red line that you don't cross if you're a believer. And for me, that red line was the Quran. Like the fact that God reveals the Quran, Allah sent the Quran down. You know, I had to say, look, I can't contextualize that or else that if I were to go there, there is no faith left, to be honest, right? If you're going to, if you're going to contextualize the book of God and you're going to say, you know, well, where does it come from? The mind of it, which of course, I mean, you know, by and large, Western academics do, and they will not, even though they don't say this, but they're not going to admit the possibility that the Quran is actually divine. Obviously, mm. they're not going to say that, but that is the underlying presumption that the Quran is the product of an eclectic mix of Eastern Western cultures of Mesopotamian myth mythologies and, and, and Persian this and, you know, uh, Syriac that. And then they have their, their underlying theories. And in my particular case, I realized that I cannot go there because to go there is to reject the fundamental doctrine that makes a Muslim a Muslim. And that is to claim that Allah revealed the book to a human being in, in, in Mecca. And that book is the Quran, Mecca and Medina, that book is the Quran. So I actually put a red line. I'm not going to go to that level. And I'm going to accept the Quran to be the book of, of, of Allah. But where I didn't put a red line were the human traditions that came after that. Whether they were the theological schools, whether they were the legal schools, whether they were later interpretations of how to accept the Quran or how to accept the traditions of the Prophet these for me are all human products. And I am not obliged to obey or follow them because Allah didn't send a revealed uh, theology. He didn't send a revealed school of law. He sent a book and he sent a prophet with that book. And how people interpret the book and how people interpret the prophet, that is a human uh, endeavor. And I feel that I'm not obliged to follow those human endeavors. Mm-hmm. So Yale definitely taught me that my tradition that I came from is but one tradition and it is not a divine tradition. I see. And then you've written a chapter entitled The Path of Allah or The Paths of Allah, revisiting classical and medieval Sunni approaches to salvation of others in a, blo- in a book called Between Heaven and Hell. Could you share your insights on religious pluralism you share in that chapter? This is one of the biggest theological uh, conundrums for uh, the next generation of Muslims. If you study classical theology, if you study early medieval theology, the topics that are brought up are frankly completely irrelevant to the average Muslim. The attributes of God and the advanced issues of predestination, these are things that are pretty boring and been there, done that. The issues that are troubling the modern Muslim mind are very different. And I would say number one on the list is salvific exclusivity versus inclusivity. In other words, how do we explain the notion that only Muslims are going to go to paradise when we clearly meet people of other faith traditions that are genuinely sincere, they're very nice people, they might have a lot of good deeds, they're, they're, they're living in a world that is disconnected from ours. How can we say that they're just going to hell unconditionally? And the paper uh, that I gave is actually as a presentation, uh, sorry, it's um, based on a presentation uh, at an academic conference that took place, I want to say 2008, 2009, uh, uh, which was basically convened with all of the big names in Islamic academia. I was just a grad student at the time. It was a very daunting conference for me to be a, a young graduate student. And um, the other, pretty much all the other names there who were far senior to me, literally double my age sometimes at the time frame, uh, were claiming that the Quran is preaching uh, that uh, salvation can be found outside of the faith. And uh, the paper I presented was trying to maintain the Quranic integrity while acknowledging 
the very difficult problem of there being good people outside the faith. And I, uh, uh, I mean, it, it is an academic paper, you can read it. The way that I did that was to claim that the Quran itself does not preach that salvation is found in other faith traditions. I think that's a very big stretch to make. The Quran is very explicit. And of course, it kind of is counterintuitive if God reveals a book and says the purpose of the book is you don't have to follow the book. It's kind of illogical. Why would God send a prophet and the prophet is saying, you don't have to follow me, follow anybody you want. That kind of sort of defeats the purpose of sending a book and sending a prophet or revealing a book and sending a prophet. At the same time, the argument I made was the following. The Quran is speaking in generics. There is one path that leads to God. The Quran is not negating that people on other paths might not individually be forgiven. That's an exception. So we speak in generics. We speak in generalities. There is one path that God intends to lead to paradise, and that is the path of Islam. There are people that claim to be on the path, i.e. Muslims, who might not be on the path in their actions. So no Muslim can claim, I am going to paradise. As well, there are people on other paths, Christianity, Judaism, other paths, the path does not lead to paradise, but people on that path might individually be forgiven because of extenuating circumstances and God will be the judge. So we don't speak of individuals, we speak of path. And that was why the title is called The Path to God or The Paths to God. And my conclusion was there is one path to God, but nobody can be guaranteed that they're on that path except Allah knows who's on that path. So in the end, Allah knows who's going to heaven and hell, but we should and we do say there is one path that is intended to take us to heaven, and that is the path of Islam. And then how does this differentiate for you between your understanding of Sunnism and Shiism? Has your path now helped you evaluate both those paths differently? Oh, definitely. My, my uh, pre-Yale uh, talks about Shiism are very different. They're still online. And my post-Yale talks are also very different. Obviously, when I've contextualized my own tradition, which I very clearly have done, then clearly I could contextualize other traditions as well. And um, uh, I did realize along the way that uh, every single tradition has to demonize the other traditions in order to validate its own. That's human nature as well, right? And the way I pre present it when I teach theological classes, Pepsi and Coke, they're hardly <laughs> discernible, yet they have to diss the other in order to validate themselves, okay? So this is what every single tradition has to do. And that's without exception, every tradition, if you are deeply involved with it, at some level, you need to criticize others more than that criticism is worth in order to validate your own tradition. So uh, the, the way that, of course, we, we proceed onwards is to then take a step back and say, okay, what is the red line that we cannot cross as Muslims? And we all have to be clear about that. For me, that red line is to believe in other than Allah as your God is a red line. You can't cross that. And to believe in a prophet after the Prophet Muhammad, that is also a red line that cannot be crossed. Because that's our kalima. La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. As long as you're within that red line, within that spectrum, we can give and take. We can agree and disagree. But we're not going to excommunicate. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was very clear that mainstream Shiism uh, is within that spectrum. And also, again, I have a phrase that, uh, that is well known for me, I say it all the time, maturity and experience teaches you what books do not. So as a young budding 20-year-old from the University of Medina, I'm quoting my teachers and I'm quoting texts and I'm very fiery against the Shiites. Okay, fast forward, 
9-11, the internecine warfare that takes place in Iraq, in uh, Afghanistan, in Pakistan, people bombing other people's shrines. And I'm like, we don't want this to happen. I realized that clerics have a role to play in that violence, even if they don't fire the gun, but they're the ones sprinkling the kerosene. And that teaches me that, hey, I can't be so, even if I disagree, and again, I'm speaking very candidly, I don't agree with certain aspects of Shiite theology, but that's not the same as preaching hatred against Shiism. And I need to have that wise tone where if I'm going to preach Sunnism, and I do, I, I preach respect of the companions, for example, right? That's what I preach. We're supposed to respect the companions. Okay, I understand that there are other Muslims that don't agree with me. Let me refute them without using slurs, without using negative adjectives, without, without causing the people that study from me to hate the other. Let me teach them that, hey, they have a theology that we don't agree with, and you know what? God will judge them in the hereafter. But in this world, we need to live civilly together. And in this world, we need to overcome these differences for a better civil society. So there's a language, a time, a place, and an audience to talk about sectarian issues. Definitely, the Friday pulpit in front of the masses is not that place and that audience. Simple as that. Uh, I'm going to shift our conversations to interfaith. What are your thoughts on inter interfaith dialogue? Uh, I know some people are for it, while others feel it has limitations. Where do you lie on the spectrum? Uh, I believe it's something that's necessary, uh, even though it's not my own personal passion. So again, I, I mean, you can understand it's necessary. I mean, people, there are many prof professions that are necessary and I'm not involved with them. So my personal passion is to be an academic teacher for the Muslim community. That's what I like to do. Um, but of course, interfaith is a part of any community. And we saw this post 9-11, that those communities and those mosques and those imams that had strong interfaith connections actually benefited and the religion of Islam benefited because of those connections. And those that were isolationists and cutting themselves off, obviously uh, it, it was easier to portray them in a very negative light because people did not know who they were. So interfaith is a very necessary part of being uh, a minority uh, faith tradition in America. And I do believe that if we want to be successful, we need to establish ties with other faith organizations. I also believe, going back to my first point with you, uh, when you asked me about, you know, or the second point about what needs to be done, this is an ideal opportunity for multiple faiths to come together and work together for the common good. Everybody is for soup kitchens. Everybody is for helping the homeless. Why can't multiple faith traditions come together and demonstrate in a godless world what happens when you believe in God? In a materialist world, what happens when you are uh, a believer in a faith tradition? Show the positives of being a faithful person to God in a world where that is becoming the minority. So I'm a strong advocate, even as I say, look, we can't do everything you know, on ourselves. And in my own personal life, you know, as, as you're aware, I am much more involved in teaching and preaching than in interfaith, but not because I don't see the need. It's simply because we all have our, our fortes and our personal passions. I want to go off something you said about bringing people together. So if we think about humanity at large and think about how every person seeks to better or improve their quality of life, however we want to define this, but even if it be purely in material terms, how powerful do you think this concept can be in bringing communities together 
around a common purpose. <clears throat> so what I mean by this is moving away from the lens of theology to a lens of improving people's quality of lives. And the Quran even speaks about this, of course, as all of mankind being made from a single soul. That's a very deep question. Um, how powerful of an impact can take place? Of course, because I'm a person of faith, I would say that good faith is the single most powerful incentive to bring about good in this world. And bad faith or, or wrong faith or, you know, bizarre or not bizarre, that's not the word, but fanatical faith is also one of the greatest sources of confusion and hatred and chaos. So if we want to cause an impact in the world, my position is there is no incentive that is potentially more powerful than the incentive of good faith. Uh, an honest person, a virtuous person, a dignified person. These are people that I'm not saying you have to have faith to be honest and virtuous, but definitely without a doubt, good faith is one of the easiest motivational catalysts that will cause you to be an honest and a kind and a compassionate person. So uh, it goes back to my point that I said a few minutes ago, that if people of faith come together, it is potentially one of the most powerful uh, indications to a world in which faith is becoming something that is secondary, that we do need faith. And faith is something that does give our, 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 our lives meaning. I mean, let me put it this way. Without faith, what really is the motivation? Really, what is the motivation uh, to be good? Now, I know that people of, of no faith, they kind of criticize this, that, oh, you're only being good because your God tells you. That is a somewhat valid criticism, but let me flip it around and say, okay, without God in the picture, without that benefit of doing good for a higher cause, what would be the motivation? And look at statistics. Generally speaking, people of faith are the most compassionate and the most charitable. And that's statistically proven. So I do think that there is a lot of positive force that can be enacted because of good faith. And I think that we need to, to highlight that across the board. Christians, Muslims, Jews, people of all faith traditions need to come together and demonstrate what it means to be a person of faith. Uh, going forward, how do you understand the relationship between unity of humankind as well as the diversity inherent within it? So what I mean here is how do you feel this may connect to the notion of respect for the other and the notion of pluralism, not just between different faiths, but also within Islam? Obviously, uh, Islamic uh, doctrines are very clear in this regard. There is unity of humanity that transcends race, skin color, language, ethnicity, background. And I have said very explicitly in a number of lectures and sermons that I have not found any person before our Prophet Muhammad that was more explicit in the unity of humanity when it comes to race. The notion of there is no superiority of black over white, of white over black, of Arab over non-Arab. Uh, uh, this is something that you do not find it in pre-Islamic uh, civilizations. Indians thought they were the best. The Romans thought they were the best. The Chinese thought they were the best. Every group is looking at itself that we are the pinnacle of civilization. 
or at least there's this notion of some superiority. The Arabs thought they were the best, right? The Arabs thought that there's nobody better than us in our, in our poetry, in our chivalry, and this and that. And for a person like the Prophet who was born from the best of the best, you know, the Quraysh, the tribe and in Mecca, he had everything. He had privilege for somebody within that time frame to say, hey, you know, this person from Africa and this person from Rome, Suhaib al-Rumi was Roman, Bilal was uh, from Africa, and Salman was from Persia. For him to say, all of us are the same, and the only thing that separates us is piety, I have made a claim that I've never found anybody before the coming of our Prophet that was as explicit in the unity of humanity from the uh, race or the cultural paradigm. That having been said, we then get to the next issue, and that is, but not everybody is equal, and there is a mechanism that you get better than others, and that is piety, that is taqwa, and that is also very clear in the Quran. We all have the potential to be better than others by, via our our, our inner piety, our God consciousness. And therefore, there, there is the notion that we want to be better than others, but that betterness doesn't come because of our, our social background, because of our economic uh, status, because of the, the bank account that I have or how large of a you know, credit my, my, my credit card has. You know, all of that is completely irrelevant, completely irrelevant. You know, as the famous tradition of our Prophet said, that God does not look at your shape or your features or your skin color. God looks at your heart and your good deeds. This is an authentic saying of a Prophet So there is this notion, therefore, that I need to get higher up. But the higher upness or the hierarchy is based upon how good I am. So there is this, this clear notion that you want to be better than the other person. And the Quran mentions this, Sari'u, race to one another. Fastabiqul khayrat, win the race in good deeds. There's a verse in the Quran, Fastabiqul al khayrat. Win the good, win the race. Istabaqa means you won the race. Win the race via your good deeds. So we do want to be better than other people, but the betterness is found in how pious we are. And the goal of every one of us is to come out a winner. And the beauty of our faith you can come out a winner and nobody else has to be a loser because it's you yourself and, and it's me, myself, and I. On the day of judgment, you have to answer for yourself. And as long as you're a winner, your winning is not going to impact anybody else. So that's the good thing of our faith tradition, alhamdulillah. Agreed. Now I want to talk about intra-faith, Muslim-to-Muslim relationships. What do you think can be done to improve those relationships, especially in these times, uh, to better support each other? First thing we've got to do is to marginalize the preachers of hate. Every single strand of Islam needs to take care of its own dirty laundry. That's what needs to happen. Every single strand has within it moderate voices and fanatical voices. We need to own up to our own baggage. Now, I have moved on from any particular strand, but obviously because of who I was, I'm still associated with that strand, even if I'm not a part of it. Therefore, it becomes more incumbent on me to speak out against the preachers within my own ranks, if you like, right? Mm -hmm. And to marginalize voices that are stigmatizing, stereotyping, castigating, generalizing other Muslim strands out there. And if we were to do this and we push forward the moderate voices, that is definitely the number one thing that can be done. People that are instigating hatred of other faith traditions or other Muslims in a manner that is, and, and of course, what that manner is, I mean, we all have to, you know, it's a bit of a, of a, 
it's a bit of a fine line sometimes, and sometimes it's not. Like, is it a fine line to say, we don't believe that Jesus is the son of God? If somebody says, hey, you're preaching hatred there. I mean, what are you going to say to that? You know, we don't believe Jesus is the son of God. I mean, I'm saying it as politely as I can, you know. And that's not the same as saying, oh, those filthy, dirty kufars all going to heaven or hell. There's ways to phrase certain things that are different than other ways. And the same goes for intra-faith as well, where Sunnis do have, a, I, I will say Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, if a, if a Shi'i comes and says, oh, that's hate speech. I mean, what am I going to say to that? I mean, I think Abu Bakr is radiallahu anhu, and I know you disagree. So there has to be an element of common sense. That having been said, clearly, at times, there are preachers that cross the red line. And those preachers that do, as I said, we should not give them platforms. We should socially ostracize them. We should not let them be preaching at our, our masjid. So if there's a preacher that is known to be just nasty and derogatory, we need to communally come together and marginalize. I think that's one of the simplest things that needs to be done. A second thing that needs to be done is that we do need to be frank about our differences in a civil manner. We saw, and I was young at the time, but I was alive at the time, the 70s and 80s, especially with the Iranian revolution. We saw what happened when problems were ignored or theological issues were just brushed under. Because in the late 80s, those theological differences did surface in a very nasty manner. And I don't think that is wise. And I, I give an interview for Iranian TV, Press TV. It's online, you can see it. It's one of my most highly watched interviews. And I was asked some very difficult questions by the Iranian interview. And I was very blunt. I mean, he asked me point blank, do you want to achieve Sunni Shia unity? And I said, no, that's not a feasible goal. It's never been a goal for 14 centuries. It's not going to happen all of a sudden, you know, to, to just, you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya and pray in the same masjids. That's not going to happen. It was attempted in the early 80s in America, and it ended up being very nasty. I remember that time frame. It's just not going to happen because there's always been a comfortable distance between the two mosques. Let it be that way. We just don't want to preach hatred. That doesn't mean that we have to be in the same rows together. I'm not saying we shouldn't be in the same rows. In some communities that are happening, that's great. But should that be the ideal or the norm across the globe? I said in the interview, and I still stand by this, that's never happened historically. Historically, the two mosques have always been separate from one another. We just don't want them to be hating or bombing one another. You know what I'm saying? It's fine if they're separate. So to be pragmatic in our unity, let's come together for issues of Islamophobia. Let's come together for issues of community service. You know, let's come together for dialogue and civil unions. No problem. But must we come together on the 10th of Muharram when Shiite masters are doing certain things and we're not? I don't think so. And so I'm a pragmatist in the end of the day. I'm not aiming for some utopic la-la land of kumbaya. That's not going to happen. That means, and this is my final point basically, let us be civil in our, in our dialogues and be frank. Like, look, let's agree to disagree. Shiites have an interpretation of Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali radiallahu anhu that's different than Sunnis. And in advanced classes, let's explain to them in a civil manner and let's let it be. End of story. There's no point covering it up or denying or ignoring. At the same time, it's counterproductive to instigate and incite hatred because of those differences. Have a middle line between them. I want to talk about reason and revelation. You explored how Ibn Taymiyyah understood the perennial debate between what is usually referred to as reason versus revelation. I wonder if you would be happy to share some of your thoughts regarding the relationship between reason and the intellect and how Ibn Taymiyyah defines aql 
V of E revelation? Uh, That's a very good question. In fact, the answer to this question was the primary reason why I wanted to do my PhD in this topic, because as you said, it is the perennial question, the debate between uh, reason versus revelation or the debate between Greece versus Athens, you know, each one is, uh, sorry, uh, Greece versus Jerusalem, sorry, you know, um, each one representing uh, a different thing. Um, and I, I chose the topic of my PhD because I really wanted to do a deep dive in the mind of a theologian that I really admire and to see what he thought of this entire debate. In fact, he wrote a magnum opus on it, an 11 volume book uh, entitled Reconciling Reason and Revelation uh, in Islam. That's his 10 volume, 11 volume book, you know, or, or Raising the Conflict Between Reason and Revelation. And I really appreciate the way that Ibn Taymiyyah tackled the question and I'm still influenced by his responses to this day because I'm very sympathetic to that paradigm. What is that paradigm? The paradigm is as follows. There can be no actual conflict between correct reason and between correctly understood revelation because the one is a gift of God, the intellect, and the other is a revelation from God to mankind. Since the origin of both is God, there cannot be an actual conflict between the two. Hence, any conflict between the two is a perceived conflict, and the conflict is in our minds. We need to reconcile our misunderstandings. We've misunderstood one of the two. Either we've misunderstood rationale, or we've misunderstood the sacred texts. And so we need to go back to the books and work out a modus vivendi, a, a mechanism where both of them are still valid. And of course, by the way, we're, we're, in a, we're having this interview at the pinnacle of the coronavirus lockdown, right? And I have to bring this in here. This entire paradigm is being played out in front of our eyes when it comes to how the Muslim world has responded to this coronavirus. We still have clerics that are claiming that there's no such thing as contagious diseases. We still have clerics that are saying that we should not shut down the mosques and we should be praying all together because that's the only way God is gonna help us. And in my opinion, that is lunacy. That is ignoring empirical evidence. And I have been at the forefront of a group of clerics that are saying, guys, our religion is not a foolish religion. It is not a religion that tells us to throw intellect to the wind. And by the way, it's Ibn Taymiyyah that's, that's giving me this, this drive to say this, right? Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, who's viewed as a very, very fundamentalist scholar, and that is a misunderstanding of Ibn Taymiyyah. He's actually a very intellectual scholar who's defending uh, a literalist understanding intellectually, i.e. he's saying if the Quran says it, then it should be true as long as intellect also agrees with it. And the way that I view the current situation with the coronavirus the Quran never negates uh, the existence of diseases or the existence of precautionary measures against diseases. On the contrary, it's very easy to extrapolate from the Quran and Sunnah the necessity to be cautious and the necessity to, in the words of our Prophet, tie your camel and then put your trust in God. And therefore, my position has always been that we take every reasonable precaution to counter the virus. And if that means closing the mosques down, so be it. We shall close the mosques down because what is being asked of us is not to stop praying to God. We still pray to God in our houses. What is being asked of us is to stop congregating in mosques. And the two are not the same thing whatsoever. In your personal understanding as a Sunni thinker and scholar, how do you view the role of the intellect in understanding and practicing one's faith? The role of the intellect um, is that 
the one who does not believe in Islam needs to use his or her intellect to come to the truth of Islam. The only way to prove Islam is through the rational arguments that are presented to those who worship other gods or those who reject the Prophet. The Quran is actually using rational arguments that uh, one of the verses of the Quran says that all I'm asking you to do is to think individually and in groups that is this person a madman or not, meaning is the Prophet some crazy or is he true? Because they knew him, they recognized him. So Allah is saying, this person, you know him. Do you think he's some lunatic? Of course he's not. He is a rational person, believe in him. Now, once you believe in the Prophet being a Prophet, once you believe in the Quran being from Allah, from God, then the role of reason is not to challenge revelation, but to understand it. That's what Ibn Taymiyyah's point is, right? That once you accept the Quran to be from God, logically, it is illogical to then challenge a verse and say, I don't understand the wisdom behind that. Once you accept the Quran, it's a package deal. Now that the Quran tells you, let's say the, 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 the Quran says pray to five times a day or wash your hands and face. At this point, reason does not play a role in accepting or rejecting a commandment from Allah. Rather, Reason will play a role in understanding what does the verse say? What are the implications of the verse? What are the exceptions that might exist? So reason doesn't take the role of a challenger. Reason takes on the role of an explainer to the tradition that Allah has revealed. That's my paradigm to this day. Another personal question, if I may ask, would be, what would be a thought or a question, even a faith-related question that you are still searching for a satisfying answer to and for which you would even welcome other perspectives on? That's a very personal question. I don't mind uh, uh, sharing one of the issues that I've been struggling with for quite a while. And that is um, the, the conundrum of the sincere, the sincere rejecter of Islam. Because that is something that is somewhat problematic. Before you meet such people, theoretically, you are taught and told that the truth of Islam is so self-evident that anybody who sees it and is pure will recognize it. And that is what every mainstream interpretation, Sunni, Shia, Mu'tazili, Zaydi, everybody says the same thing. Like the truth of Islam is so self-evident that every sincere person will automatically accept it once they've been exposed to it. That's theory. Reality is different. And once you interact with people, I mean, I went through programs where people have dedicated their lives to the study of Islam, right? I, I know most of the professors of Islamic studies who were active back in the day and still are. I know dozens of graduate students that are not professors and they're not Muslims and they know the faith way better than the average Muslim. Now, before I entered that world, my naive presumption was they must be evil people. How can they know the Quran and know the Prophet and not be Muslim? They must be bad people. And of course, to this day, the average Muslim is still perplexed. How can people dedicate their lives to the study of Islam, be professors of Islamic studies, read the Quran, and not be Muslim, unless they're you know, people that are out to destroy the faith? So there's this notion, how can you be that? Now, of course, when you enter that world of academia, you end up meeting dozens and dozens of people, getting to know them very well, traveling with them, interacting with them, having back and forth with them, deep discussions of a philosophical and theological nature. And 
you come to the conclusion that there are many amongst them who are genuinely, genuinely searching for the truth and genuinely sincere. And for whatever reason, they don't see Islam the way you do. And they're not as convinced as, as you are. And there are some issues that are preventing them. Now, this interview, I don't want to go down that because that's going to open a whole other kind of worms, let's just say. I mean, there are clearly some issues that they have that in their mind frame, in their paradigm, they don't have answers to. And you can try to explain from your paradigm, but they're not satisfied and they're still sincere. And to me, I wouldn't have believed that such people existed unless I interacted with them personally, which I have done. And it still represents somewhat of a problem because clearly for those people, Islam isn't as self-evident as it is to me and you. And I wonder, and I gave a sermon about this four or five years ago, and I forgot the title on YouTube, but it's there on YouTube. And the first line was, I have a question for all of you. This is the first line of the sermon. If you hadn't been born a Muslim, do you think you would accept Islam? And that's a question that I have, I'm still struggling with. And I thank Allah that I don't have to answer that question. I thank Allah. As the Quran says, Alhamdulillah, we thank Allah who has guided us to this because we would not be guided had it not been for Allah's guidance. But it's a question that terrifies me. Would I be a Muslim if I hadn't been born a Muslim? Would I see in Islam what I see now? Because I was born a Muslim, I memorized the Quran, I went through the experiences, and therefore, Alhamdulillah, my entire life, my entire life, I've never ever had a crisis of faith in meaning an actual crisis of faith. I've had crises of traditions, yes, my tradition being authentic or not. I've never doubted the existence of Allah in my life. I've never doubted the Quran being the book of Allah. I mean, how can I memorize the Quran? I've read it thousands of times. I mean, for me, the Quran is what has kept me firm in my faith, right? But imagine, hypothetically, if I weren't born in the faith and having read the Quran thousands of times, memorized the Quran, would I, as an outsider, having been born in an agnostic family, an atheist family, would I, as somebody who's never experienced the beauty of tahajjud, of prostrating to Allah, of knowing what it means to, to be a believer, because I've tasted the sweetness of faith, right? I've tasted, I know what faith brings, and I can never give it up, inshallah, now that I've tasted it. But I worry, hypothetically, if I hadn't tasted it, would I have seen the merits that I see now? And I wonder about those whom I know that are outside the faith and haven't tasted the sweetness of faith. And intellectually, there are some big impediments and I can't answer those impediments. And I wonder what's going to happen to them who are sincerely rejecting. Because according to mainstream, any interpretation, Sunni, 12 or Zaydi, it doesn't matter. If you know Islam and you reject it, there's no hope for salvation. That's pretty much standard Islamic doctrine, right? How do I reconcile that with people whom I know and who are sincere? Now, look, let me, let me be honest with you. There, there is a group of people, and I know this about them. They are genuinely dangerous people. They, don't, they want to, preserve, to present Islam in a very negative light. And I've met them in academia, and I know them. They have an agenda. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about people who are genuinely curious and genuinely open-minded and genuinely sincere. And you know this because you've lived with them, you've traveled with them, you interact with them for years on end. And they've opened up to you about their own crises of, of thought and whatnot, and you know they're sincere. And still they're not Muslim. And that is 
a problem that I haven't had an easy answer for. I've tried to solve it in the paper that I wrote and others, but I don't really have an easy answer for it. So that's all I can say. I want to talk about the future and perhaps a vision you have for the future. I think when we talk about the future, we talk in general terms, but could you name a specific objective perhaps you, can, you see the world can achieve, let's say in 25 years, and what insights and suggestions would you offer that might help achieve this vision? In 25 years, specifically, wow. Hmm. That would be uh, 2045. <laughs> still right. in our times, inshallah, for most of us that are still that old, uh, Allah knows best how, who's going to survive this and who doesn't. <laughs> in 25 years, I would hope for a world in which religiosity in general and Islam in particular is not socially ostracized. I would hope for a world that has now come to the conclusion that faith is here to stay and that militant atheism is now on the decline because we are now in the time frame of militant fundamentalist atheism. And I would hope that after the coronavirus and after, after militant atheism takes its course, that this, this level of hatred that this group has against all religions in general, and especially Islam in particular, I would hope that that would be uh, diminished because it is making life difficult and awkward. I would also hope that certain strands of postmodernist liberalism also peter out because, uh, and again, that's a deeper discussion. We didn't get into that, but uh, we are entering an age where lunacy is on the rise, to be honest, and people are going down uh, avenues of, of self-contradictory um, aspects of liberalism. And again, this is a whole different um, paradigm, but notions of self-identity. Yeah, yeah go ahead. It almost seems like what was once right is viewed as outdated, old-fashioned, and the object of ridicule. To quote. Actually, that's actually that's actually old school. That's actually a decade ago. Mm. We're still having that problem. We're now getting to the notion of that which was considered fact is itself becoming mocked. For example, the fact that there are two genders is itself becoming problematic. Genders biologically being a social construct is utterly ludicrous. I'm not talking about gender roles, which okay, I understand. Genders themselves. So you're, the claim that there is no biological difference, right? I mean, that's one example I'm giving, where things that nobody in humanity would even have thought of are now becoming mainstream, and to challenge them is becoming socially, you know, uh, uh, worthy of ostracization. We are entering an age of lunacy, to be honest here, where not only is right wrong and wrong right, but that to merely claim something to be factual is itself worthy of now being mocked. And that's just one example amongst many others. I would hope that this phase of this is a fad of postmodernist liberalism, I hope this is simply runs its course and we can come back to normalcy where, as the Quran says, Lakum dinukum you have your way, I have my way, but let me have my way. Let me be, let me, let it be permissible for me to be moral and to be dignified and to live a, a decent, a dignified life without mocking and ridicule. That's what I'm asking for. Yeah, without uh, being ostracized or uh, exactly. you know, bullied or, right? or Exactly, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Kadi, thank you so much. Pleasure is mine. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candid Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, 
please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com.